Alrighty, hey guys, what is up? Welcome to the Grow Series MCAT Content Review Podcast. So in this episode, we're going to start with Foundational Concept 7. You know, this is going to be the first episode of it. Uh, this is a part of the psychology and sociology part of the MCAT, all right? So we'll actually be going over a ton of biology, you know, biology of like behavior, and then we'll talk about motivation, attitude, and learning. So as I mentioned before, I'm going to be reviewing topics. I might not go over all the nitty gritty, but I'm going to try to give you the bulk of the content. So if I skip something, don't get mad but I won't skip anything huge. So so without further ado, uh, let's just jump into Foundational Concept 7, all right? So this episode has a ton to do with the nervous system, but that can get confusing. So I think before we get any deeper, let's talk about what the nervous system is, all right? The nervous system includes two parts. There's the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. So the central nervous system has two parts as well. That's the brain and the spinal cord. So everything else besides the brain and the spinal cord that is a part of the nervous system, is part of the peripheral nervous system. So brain and spinal cord equals central nervous system. Every other quote-unquote nervous part of your body is the peripheral nervous system. And that includes both the cranial and spinal nerves. So it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that, okay, you know, cranial nerves have to do with the brain. Probably makes sense that it's in the central nervous system, but that's actually wrong. Cranial nerves are part of the peripheral nervous system, and same thing with the spinal nerves. Uh, those nerves are also part of the peripheral nervous system. So uh, the peripheral nervous system, it's the nerves, the ganglia, and the neurons. And it's both the afferent and efferent, all right? So remember the afferent neurons, they're kind of the ones that are going to the central nervous system, and efferent neurons are the ones exiting the central nervous system. So to remember the difference, think of the E and efferent neurons as the word exiting. So efferent neurons are exiting the central nervous system, and then afferent neurons are coming into the nervous system. So efferent exiting, afferent coming in. Alrighty, so I'll get into the anatomy of the central nervous system first. So the brain has three parts and they're on top of each other. So the brain stem is at the bottom and that should be pretty easy just because if you think about plants, you know, plant stem is on the bottom, not bad. Then on top of that is the cerebellum. And then the last and the biggest layer on top of the cerebellum is the cerebrum. So when you think of the brain and you think of that, you know, that classic big blob, you're thinking of the cerebrum. And it was thought that the reasons humans, you know, quote unquote, won the evolutionary race is that incredible growth of the cerebral cortex. So that big blob on top, because that, you know, developed better than other animals, we did better. So the anatomy of the cerebrum is pretty simple. So the cerebrum, it's that big blob on top and it's split into left and right hemispheres. So not too bad, right? The cerebellum is simple too. It's just chilling under the cerebrum. But the brainstem, that's a little more complicated because even though it's a stem, you should know it's split into the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla. So it's in that exact order from top to bottom. So the tip of the brainstem, that's the midbrain, right under that is the pons, and right under that, closest to the spinal cord, that's the medulla. And then the last part of the central nervous system is the spinal cord, but you don't really have to know the real details about that. All right, so just to jog your memory a bit, we got the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. So in the central nervous system, we have two things, the brain and the spinal cord, not too bad. In the brain itself, we separate it into three parts. So from top to bottom, the three parts of the brain are the cerebrum, the cerebellum, and the brainstem. But in that bottom part, in that brainstem, we also have three parts. So from top to bottom, the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla. So those three parts are the parts of the brainstem. The peripheral nervous system isn't as bad. There aren't as many subcategories of subcategories, you know, anatomically that you need to know. Just know that there's 12 pairs of cranial nerves and 31 pairs of spinal nerves. 
And that should be good enough for now. So nerves closer to the spinal cord, they're visible and large, um, you know, just like the branches of a tree. But the further you go distally, like the arms and hands, the smaller they get. So when you're close to the spine, they're pretty visible and big. But when you get further, like when you get in the hands, they get less and less visible. All right. So I mentioned the peripheral nervous system includes nerves, neurons, and ganglia. Ganglia, those are just a collection of cell bodies outside the central nervous system. And it kind of looks like a swollen orb on a nerve fiber because it's just like a ton of cell bodies clumped together. So cell bodies are part of the neuron that contain the nucleus and they also connect dendrites to axons. So basically just know for ganglia, they're just those neuron nuclei, AKA the cell bodies that are all clumped together on a nerve fiber. So we'll discuss motor units here too. A motor unit is what you get when lower motor neurons want to start messing with your skeletal muscle. Motor units are the furthest step away from the rest of the nervous system because it connects the neurons with the actual muscle. So that's kind of the end goal, right? Your central nervous system goes all the way to your muscle, has a message, tells your muscle that message, boom, it's done. So lower motor neurons are that last step. And a lower motor neuron, you might be wondering, what is that? It's an efferent neuron, which makes sense, right? It's controlling a muscle. It's exiting the central nervous system. If it's exiting a central nervous system, it's an efferent neuron. And then it goes towards the skeletal muscle. So usually one of those lower motor neurons controls a ton of different muscle cells as a unit. Therefore, they're called a motor unit. So one lower motor neuron controls different muscle cells, a ton of them, and then all of them work as a unit. Therefore, it's a motor unit. Now, if you think about that definition, you might think like maybe if it's something like your hand, you know, your hand has muscles, it has motor neurons, and your hand's way more precise, you know, so all the muscles in your hands aren't working as one unit. Anything that's precise that needs specifics like that, there's multiple different motor neurons and each motor neuron has a motor unit, like it controls a few cells, but it doesn't control all your cells. So if you think about your hand, you know, if your whole hand was controlled by one motor neuron as one motor unit, you can only flex or relax it. But since your hand has a ton of different motor neurons and they all control a little different piece, you know, a few cells here, a few skeletal muscle cells there, you can be really precise with it. You know, maybe you can uh, flex your pinky finger, but relax your index finger. All right. So related to motor units and muscle in general is the muscle stretch reflex. The muscle stretch reflex involves two parts. It's an afferent stimulus and an efferent response. Remember, efferent is like exit and afferent is something coming in. So it makes sense that the afferent stimulus is coming to your spine and getting it to respond. The efferent response is exiting your spine and uh, adjusting your muscle. So the point of a muscle stretch reflex is to get a muscle to contract when it gets stretched, right? So think about it. If we pull on a piece of string and we stretch it too much, what will it do? You know, it'll snap. Well, a muscle stretch reflex is when your body, you know, gets that piece of string to contract and pull back without you even thinking about it. So the string fights back against you pulling on it. The most iconic example is the knee jerk response. Basically, if you've seen it done, someone taps a hammer on the tendon under your kneecap and the lower leg kicks out. So the tendon the hammer hits does a ton. It's holding the lower leg in place as well as holding some muscles behind it in as well. And also a bit random, but it's called the patellar tendon or the patellar ligament because it connects bone to muscle and bone to bone. So a tendon connects bone to muscle, a ligament connects bone to bone. And since the patellar tendon does both, it's called both a patellar tendon and patellar ligament. So if you follow sports at all and follow injuries in sports, a patellar tendon rupture takes a long time to recover, you know, roughly six to seven months if it's a complete tear. Uh, some people have it a bit longer. Um, it's a pretty brutal injury because it does so much. But back to the story. So someone hits your tendon under the kneecap and your lower leg kicks out, right? Pretty simple. 
but it's a bit deeper. What happens is the patellar tendon, that thing, that tendon right under your kneecap, it gets stretched out. And then uh, stretch detectors in your quads that are called muscle spindles notice the stretch and they're like, oh snap, let's tell someone. So they tell the sensory neurons and those sensory neurons go to the spinal cord. The spinal cord like understands and shoots messages to the motor neurons and the motor neurons run back to the quadricep and get it to contract. So it's kind of like someone calling the police on a robbery, right? The stretch is the robbery. The stretch receptors, aka the muscle spindles, are the innocent bystanders that call the police. The sensory neurons are like the phone lines. And then the motor neurons that come running back to stretch the quadricep are the cops. So if you notice, I only mentioned the spinal cord. I didn't mention the brain at all. It has no contact with your brain. That's the really important part to know here about the knee-jerk reflex. Your brain is super late on the news. It gets the info that the reflex is happening after it's been initiated. So the knee-jerk response that doesn't touch your brain at all. It's a reflex that only happens with sensory and motor neurons and your spinal cord. All right, so back to the nervous system. It does a ton, all right? From simple stuff like controlling your muscles, breathing and digesting food, to complicated stuff like having emotions, being aware of life and all of its complexities and learning like you're doing right now. So the simple stuff that you don't even consider or that you consider automatic is a part of the autonomic nervous system. So if it's automatic, it's the autonomic nervous system. So just off the bat, think of autonomic as digestion, breathing, sneezing, or coughing. So stuff you just do, you know, you don't really think about it. And just a reminder, we're still talking about the nervous system here, but it isn't really anything to do with like the differentiation between peripheral or central. The autonomic nervous system has its own split. It's the sympathetic and parasympathetic. So try not to get the sympathetic and parasympathetic muddled with the whole central and peripheral stuff. It's all the nervous system, but right now we're on the autonomic stuff. So the sympathetic nervous system, it's the fight or flight response. We talked about it before. Essentially, it's like slowing digestion down, dilating your eyes, and increasing heart rate. The parasympathetic is the rest and digest. So it's increasing digestion, lowering your heart rate, and increasing saliva. So parasympathetic's all chill, sympathetic's all hyper. And uh, parasympathetic, think about it as paralyzed, you're chilling. So just like that, you know that there's two splits for the nervous system, the central and peripheral split. And then within the autonomic nervous system, it's split between the sympathetic and parasympathetic. So now for a decent amount of time, we'll jump into the central nervous system, more specifically the brain. We'll talk about gray and white matter, upper motor neurons, somatosensory tracts, and then we're going to get into the details about what each part of the brain does. And then we'll get into how messing with the brain changes you. And lastly, talk about how we learn so much about the brain, specifically the technology we use to study the brain. So we'll get into the gray and white matter stuff. Gray matter is all the neuron cell bodies. Remember I said cell bodies are those nuclei in the neurons. So gray matter is all that stuff. It's all the nuclei all that cool, interesting stuff. Sometimes cell bodies are called somas. So just a heads up, if you hear soma, it means cell body, vice versa. White matter, it's all the myelinated axons. And remember, myelin's like insulation and it's white. So when you think of white matter, think of those white myelin insulated looking things on the axon. And if there's a ton of those myelinated axons traveling together in the white matter, it's called a tract. So white matter, myelinated white axons, Gray matter is all the neuron cell bodies, otherwise known as soma. So now we'll talk about the position of white and gray matter, and this confuses people, but it honestly shouldn't be too bad because you can kind of use common sense and figure it out. So in the brain, white matter is on the inside and gray matter is on the outside, but in the spinal cord, the gray matter is on the inside and the white matter is on the outside. 
So the central nervous system has a brain and spinal cord, but the location of the gray and the white matter is flipped. And remember before I said white matter is a ton of myelin insulated axons? That means that white matter can be assumed to be used for moving information around. So common sense wise, the brain, it's a huge blob of connections being made, right? So it makes sense for the matter that is for connections to be on the inside where messages, you know, can be sent all around the brain and to the spinal cord. The spinal cord, on the other hand, is sending messages to the rest of the body. And if all the communication stuff is on the outside of the spinal cord, then that means the white matter has to be there as well. White matter is all about communication. It's all myelinated axons, and those are all communications. So in the brain, all the communication happens within the brain, inside the brain. So the white matter is inside. The spinal cord is going all around your body. So the white matter is on the outside. So moving on from that, we talked about lower motor neurons before. I don't know, five, six minutes ago. So we're moving on to the brain, right? And so we'll get into the upper motor neurons. Those are scattered in the cerebral cortex. So just to make sure you're not confused, the cerebral cortex is the outer layer of the cerebrum. Remember the cerebrum is that big blob I said is on the top. What you stereotypically think of as a brain is the cerebrum, but the outer layer is the cerebral cortex. So if I ever say cerebral cortex, just remember that's the outer layer of the cerebrum. So the point of upper motor neurons is basically to control those lower motor neurons. And a great example of these upper motor neurons that pops up is the corticospinal tract and the cortical bulbar tract. So the corticospinal tract, they're upper motor neuron axons that go from the cerebral cortex, remember the outer layer. So then they travel to the spinal cord and then they cross on their way to the spinal cord. So those on the left cerebral hemisphere control all the lower motor neurons on the right side since they're crossing. So the cortical spinal tract, it goes from the cerebrum to the spinal cord. The cortical bulbar tract goes from the cerebrum to the brainstem. So it doesn't do the weird crossing stuff that the cortical spinal tract does. And the upper motor neurons and the cortical bulbar tract control the whole body. All right, so speaking of these tracts, let's get into the somatosensory tracts. So mechanoreceptors are in charge of touch, position, and vibration. Nociceptors are for pain and thermoreceptors are for temperature. So mechanoreceptors have to do with mechanical touch. Thermoceptors have to do with temperature. Those make sense, right? Nociceptors, it's that weird one. So what does noci have to do with pain? Well, noci comes from the Latin word nocere, which means to harm. So nocere means harm. Pain is harmful, obviously. And therefore, it makes sense that nociceptors mean pain receptors. So in general, any sensation that goes to the spinal cord immediately crosses, then goes to the brain. So people often get confused. They think somatosensation crosses in the brain. It actually crosses in the spinal cord. So just be aware of that. All right, so continuing with the central nervous system, let's get into the anatomy of the brain one more time. So the cerebrum has four lobes. And honestly, the way I memorized it was a song from my psychology teacher, but I'm not going to start singing on the podcast, so I'll give you a mnemonic instead, all right? So there's four lobes in the cerebrum, and there are the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, the occipital lobe, and the temporal lobe. So frontal, parietal, occipital, and temporal, first letters of each, F-P-O-T. A mnemonic I use is four parts of the cerebrum. So the phrase four parts of the cerebrum is funny because four parts of the is the mnemonic. You know, four parts of the correlates to the letters F-P-O-T, just like frontal, parietal, occipital, temporal is F-P-O-T. So then you just end it with cerebrum just to fill it out. So that kind of keys you in that there's four parts of the cerebrum, F-P-O-T, which, you know, 
frontal, parietal, occipital, temporal. So just remember the mnemonic, four parts of the cerebrum, and then the mnemonic gives you the four parts. All right, so just to know some basic functions of each lobe, the frontal is for motor functions, but it also has Broca's area, which is important for the production of speech. The parietal, it's mostly spatial and somatosensory stuff. And then the occipital is most notable for being where vision is processed, while the temporal is for where sound is processed. But the temporal also has a Wernicke's area, which is for understanding speech. So just run it back. Broca's area and motor functions is that frontal lobe. Then the next one is parietal lobe. That's spatial stuff, you know, sensation, all that stuff. Occipital is vision. And then temporal is sound and Wernicke's area. And then a quick run through. Broca's area is to make speech. Wernicke's area is to understand speech. So those are the four lobes, right? They're pretty, pretty easy to understand. But there's also some significant things that are deeper in this cerebrum to know. And we'll just get into that. So there's the basal ganglia. Just connect that with motor movements and you should be good. I mean, you don't really need to go into detail here. I think that's good enough. There's the thalamus. Thalamus, just think of feeling, all right? So feeling as in senses and also feeling as in feeling emotions. Thalamus is used for senses, emotions, and cognition. So when you think of thalamus, you think of feeling, you know, touching, feeling, and also feeling emotions. Under the thalamus is the hypothalamus. That's not really related to the thalamus at all. Don't get them confused. Don't think there's a correlation. So the hypothalamus, that controls the pituitary gland, which is huge because the hypothalamus therefore controls a ton of hormones in the body. So the hypothalamus is like a bridge between your nervous system, which is like your brain, and your endocrine system, which is all the fancy hormones. And it does so because it controls the pituitary gland. Now, that was all the cerebrum. But remember I said earlier that the brain is split into three parts. So just to run your memory again, three parts of the brain. Cerebrum on the top. That's a big stereotypical brain, which is where most of the focus of the brain is on. Then there's the cerebellum, which is under the cerebrum. And then finally, the brainstem at the bottom. So what does the cerebellum do? It's under the cerebrum, which seems to take all the shine. But the cerebrum is complex thinking. The cerebellum and the brainstem are more basic animalistic things. So the cerebellum is all about getting you to move around and it can understand how you're positioned and then coordinate the movement of your limbs, your eyes, and your body in general. So when you think of cerebellum, think of it as movement. And since the name cerebellum and cerebrum are pretty close, just think the longer word is on the bottom. So the cerebellum is the thing on the bottom. The cerebrum is a big thing on the top. So the brainstem is even lower than the cerebellum and it does even more basic things. It does things like respiration, digestion, etc. And what's cool is that the lower you go, the more basic and animalistic you get. So the top is the cerebrum and it's a ton of complex thinking, emotions, you know, planning, preparing, stuff like that. Then you get lower to the cerebellum. It's all about moving, which is, you know, not as complicated as emotions and thinking. And then you get to the brainstem and it's like super basic stuff. Um, it's like respiration, digestion, stuff like that. So it's kind of like organized, you know, layer by layer. So in order to study the brain, we had to change some variables. And that means scientists had to go in and physically mess with the brain. All these studies were done on animals, not humans, but they're pretty gruesome. So if you're not trying to hear it, just go ahead and skip about two minutes forward. All right. So first of all, there's traditional methods like tissue removal, and then there's things like sucking out brain tissue, but there's also more interesting ways to screw up your brain. Uh, radiofrequency lesions, for example, neurochemical lesions, and cortical cooling. 
So radiofrequency lesions are brutal. They basically stick a wire into the brain. They pass a high-frequency current, which destroys the brain tissue. Neurochemical lesions are when they pour substance into an area of the brain, which causes your calcium to go haywire and start exciting neurons to death. And an example of this is oxydopamine. Oxydopamine basically destroys dopamine and norepinephrine neurons. So they use it to simulate Parkinson's in animal models. So that's a neurochemical lesion. It just excites it to death. All right, and then the last one is cortical cooling. That's when you cool neurons until they stop firing. Overall, I feel like those aren't really that high yield. So don't spend too much time on it. But yeah. All right. So the last bit of brain stuff we'll get into for now before we jump into the hereditary stuff is the ways to study your brain. So I'll keep it pretty basic. So if the question asks about imaging structures only without studying activity. So if you want only the image and not the activity, use a CT or an MRI. If you're imaging structure and activity, use PET or fMRI. So PET and fMRI are structure plus activity just structure without activity is CT or MRI. And then if we are, you know, facing a question that asks about brain waves or electrical activity, or the subject is doing something that's lengthy, uh, you know, involved in a long task, they use the EEG. All right, so I'll run through it again. Structure is CT and MRI. Structure plus activity is PET and fMRI. And then brain waves is EEG. And EEG, it's just a bunch of like squiggly lines on paper. The rest of them are actual pictures of the brain. So if you see squiggly lines, you already know it's EEG. All right, so done with just focusing on the brain. I'm going to get into human development, you know, like hereditary stuff, genes, all that jazz. So sperm and egg, that's the start of all of it, right? So sperm are the sex cells for males. But what you really need to know is that the head has a DNA and the middle has a ton of mitochondria to keep the sperm propelling. The egg, on the other hand, is huge and it has two outer layers. So just like plants, you know how they have a cell wall and a plasma membrane? Eggs are kind of similar. They have the zona pellucida and a plasma membrane. So the zona pellucida is basically just a layer of proteins that have these branched sugar chains sticking out of it. Those proteins are called glycoproteins because they have those sugar chains. So the zona pellucida is just stuffed with glycoproteins. All right, so yeah. Just basically know with the egg, zona pellucida, and plasma membrane, sperm, the head has DNA, the middle is a ton of mit- mitochondria to keep it going. So everyone knows like the basics of fertilization, right? Sperm meets egg and voila, baby. But for the MCAT, you got to know a bit more. First, the sperm hits that zona pellucida, which is, remember, kind of like the cell wall. And so the sperm hits it and has to break through it. And it does so with some special enzymes in this thing called the acrosome reaction. So when the egg sees the sperm is chewing its way through the zona pellucida, they send some enzymes in what we call the cortical reaction. So it sees, you know, it's trying to go through and it's like, I'll help you out, cortical reaction. So, you know, just know A comes before C, just like acrosome reaction comes before the cortical reaction. And so the sperm binds to the plasma membrane and then it gives its genetic information to the egg. It doesn't only give its, you know, traditional nuclear DNA. It also throws in some mitochondrial DNA. And the sperm's mitochondrial DNA doesn't really have a big impact here. It's not really significant, but I can definitely see the MCAT, you know, throwing a trick question involving that little tidbit of information. So just know the sperm, it gives its nuclear DNA and then its mitochondrial DNA, both of those. But the mitochondrial does nothing. All right, so after that fusion of genetic information, we can safely say fertilization occurred, right? All right, we're done with fertilization. But what happens to this new concoction of sperm and egg we made? I could make a joke right now about the word concoction and sperm, but I think I'll pass on that. Anyways, so after fertilization, we get the zygote, has the zona pellucida present, and the zona pellucida is that outer layer. So the cells, they start dividing in that zona pellucida. 
until you have 32 cells. So we call those 32 cells the morula. A good way to remember that the morula is the product of cell division to go from 1 to 32 cells. Think of the morula being a product of more cell divisions. So the morula is important because this is what then differentiates into the trophoblast and the embryoblast. So the trophoblast is on the outside and it makes the placenta and it nourishes the baby later on. But the embryoblast, it's a VIP because, you know, it's the embryoblast that helps form the fetus. So just jumping into the embryoblast and what it does, basically it's involved in blastulation. The embryoblast gets a little tighter, a little more compact, and it makes two things. It makes an inner cell mass and a hollow cavity. And we're going to call that hollow cavity a blastocele. All right, so remember, we have the zygote. In the zygote's zona pellucida, we have the morula, which is a product of, you know, cell division from 1 to 32 cells. In the morula, we have the trophoblast and the embryoblast. And then in the embryoblast, we get to make an inner cell mass and a hollow cavity called the blastocele. So you might be wondering where the words blastulation and blastocele comes from. They're both Greek. So blastulation comes from the word blastos which means sprout and you know that kind of makes sense because it's a process of making kids where you're literally sprouting something from nothing and along with that the seal part of blastocele means cave or cavity which also makes sense because like i said the blastocele is that hollow cavity so the morula's uh morula makes it trophoblast embryoblast embryoblast makes it inner cell mass and the hollow cavity hollow cavity is called the blastocele so the inner cell mass that's the fun part that hangs around on one side while the hollow cavity hangs around on the other side of the zygote. Um, the inner cell mass makes three layers. They're the amniotic cavity, the epiblasts, and the hypoblasts. And the layers are present in that order. So amniotic cavity is at the top, epiblasts are right under it, and the hypoblasts are right under the epiblasts. So think of it kind of like the alphabet, you know, A's before E, E's before H, you know. So it's in like an alphabetical order from top to bottom. So in summary, with blastulation, the morula's embryoblast makes an inner cell mass and a hollow cavity called, called a blastocele. And then the inner cell splits even further into the amniotic cavity at the top, the epiblast in the middle, and the hypoblast on the bottom in alphabetical order from top to bottom. All right, so it is a little confusing. There's lots of steps. You know, you get deeper and deeper down into it. So just kind of run through it again. And I'll run through it one more time all the way at the end, but just remember to get that memory going, all right? So after blastulation, there's implantation, but during implantation, two stages occur. There's gastrulation and neurulation. So after blastulation, we got gastrulation. Now, you might be wondering where the word gastrulation comes from. kind of sounds gastro, kind of sounds like a stomach, right? Well, that's because gastro literally means stomach. Because originally, they thought this stage was just about the formation of the gut, but then they learned it's actually about the formation of the trilaminar embryo. You might be like, what the heck? That sounds like a confusing word. I wish it was just about the gut. Well, don't worry about it. So basically, trilaminar embryo, it's three germ layers. The germ layers are the ectoderm on the top, the mesoderm in the middle, and the endoderm on the bottom. You might be like, what the heck? What is a germ layer? So it doesn't have anything to do with actual germs. Germ is from the Latin word germen. Not German, like a country, like German, uh, G-E-R-M-E-N. And that also means like to sprout. So just like blastose and blastulation meant to sprout, germ layers comes from the word germ, which comes from the Latin word germen, which means to sprout. So as you can see, everything related to birth all originate in the words that have to do with like sprouting or starting or stuff like that.
So the trilaminar embryo is the three germ layers, and the germ layers are the ectoderm on the top, the mesoderm in the middle, and the endoderm on the bottom. So to remember what is where, just remember that the ectoderm is the only one with a letter T in it, so it makes sense that this germ layer is on the top, right? The mesoderm is starts with M, so it's in the middle, that makes sense too. The endoderm, it's the last one left, you just know it's on the bottom. All right, so after blastulation, we have gastrulation. And in gastrulation, we make a trilaminar embryo, which have germ layers. Germ layers, they, you know, they produce something else later on. We'll get into that in just a bit. First, let me finish off neurulation. Then we'll get into what the germ layers make. So neurulation, that's basically the core in the mesoderm. Remember, mesoderm is the middle layer. That becomes a notochord. So just remember, neurulation, notochord. All right, so the three layers are the ectoderm, the mesoderm, and the endoderm, the three layers of gastrulation. So basically what happens is the ectoderm, it makes all the quote-unquote outer stuff. So like the outer layers of the skin, the sweat glands, and then the nervous system, both central and peripheral. So the nervous system isn't really outer. So, But just know it's the outer layers of the skin, sweat glands, and then nervous system. The mesoderm, it makes the inner layers of the skin kind of makes sense because it's the middle layer. So inner layers of the skin and then it makes a bunch of like inner stuff. So muscles, bones, kidneys, bladder and sexual organs. The endoderm, it makes things that have to do with digestion and the lungs. So that means the endoderm makes the GI tract, the liver, the pancreas and then the lungs, which have nothing to do with that. Just remember, anything related to digestion plus lungs equals endoderm. All right, so I said gastrulation and neurulation is happening during implantation. What is implantation? So that's when the endometrium beefs up while the zona pellucida of the zygote starts breaking down. So the endometrium, it's you know getting ready. It knows that a baby's about to be made. So the zygote's getting ready to land on the endometrium and form a connection so they can hit the next phase of growth. Now, remember earlier, we talked about a trophoblast and how the morula splits into a trophoblast and an embryoblast. Well, we put a lot of attention on the embryoblast part. Right now, the trophoblast really shines. So the trophoblast makes a few transformations and then it's able to fuse blood vessels with the endometrium to become the bridge between mother and child. So it transports nutrients and waste and this whole web of blood vessels that the trophoblast formed is called the placenta and it forms later on, you know, gradually, not immediately when implantation occurs. It's like a gradual process. All right. So of course, after that, you have nine months of gestation and then a full term, it's roughly, you know, 37 to 42 weeks. And there are complications that can arise if the child is birthed pre-37 weeks or post-42 weeks. So we'll run through everything one more time because there's a lot of details. So basically, sperm and eggs start everything. So the sperm has DNA in the head. And cool, interesting stuff you got to know is that it goes through the zona pellucida of the egg with two reactions. So there's the acrosome reaction, which the sperm does, and the cortical reaction, which the egg does. So the acrosome reaction happens before the cortical reaction, just like the letter A comes before the letter C, acrosome, cortical. So the sperm finally binds with the egg. It transfers its DNA, including mitochondrial DNA. And then fertilization occurs when they fuse genetic information. So officially, right when they fuse genetic information, boom, fertilization. So the zona pellucida, that was the outer layer of the egg. That's where the morula starts forming. The morula forms into 32 cells from one cell and splits into the embryoblast and the trophoblast. So the trophoblast, it's on the outside, and it makes the placenta. That nourishes the baby later on. But the embryoblast is a VIP because it makes a fetus. 
So Embryoblast finally does blastulation, where it makes an inner cell mass and a hollow cavity we call the blastocil. So the inner cell mass is cool because it makes three layers, the amniotic cavity at the top, the epiblast in the middle, and the hypoblast at the bottom. And they're stacked in alphabetical order. So at the top is the amniotic cavity, then the epiblast, then the hypoblast. So the embryoblast makes the inner cell mass, and remember I said the blastocil. The blastocil at this point doesn't do too much, so... So after blastulation, there's implantation. During implantation, there's two stages that occur, gastrulation and neurulation. So gastrulation, basically you make a trilaminar embryo. That's three germ layers. You make the ectoderm, which is on top, the mesoderm, which is in the middle, and the endoderm, which is on the bottom. And then neurulation, it's when the core in the mesoderm becomes the notochord. So this is a super chaotic time because there's gastrulation happening, there's neurulation happening, and there's implantation happening at the same time. Implantation, basically the endometrium beefs up. It connects with our trophoblast. Remember the morula before? It made the embryoblast and the trophoblast. Trophoblast is really, this is its part. So it fuses with the endometrium. It makes blood vessel connections, and it's the bridge between mother and child. So there you go. That's all the content we went over for fertilization. Now we're going to jump into the child's motor milestones. So I know that whole, you know, birthing process, fertilization, that was a lot. So these motor milestones are a lot more psychology-esque, whereas fertilization is a lot more like biology type stuff. All right. So a child's motor milestones, there's some rough points in the child's development, uh, which you really don't need to know. Just know that everyone is different, but also similar in a few ways. So, you know, that's where nature versus nurture comes in again. Some things are naturally done and other things come with an environmental or a cultural influence. So some things that are natural are reflexes. So the ones you get from the get-go right when you're born are the breathing reflex, the eye blink reflex, the pupillary reflex, and the swallowing reflex. They're all pretty self-explanatory. But as the baby gets older, they develop other reflexes, and we use these reflexes as a timeline to see if the baby is developing well. So I'll go over some of the most significant ones. So there's the rooting reflex. That's when a baby turns their head for their mother's nipple or for the bottle, but it goes away after a few weeks of being born. Then there's the palmer grasp flex. That's where children will grab whatever touches their palm, but that also goes away after three or four months. So then there's the gallant reflex. That's where uh, if their skin gets stroked, they swing to the side it was stroked at, and that goes away at six months. So those are just three of them. There's a few more, but they're honestly pretty low yield based on my experience. Just got to know that reflexes come and go, and it's kind of what we judge their growth by. So on to adolescence. The concept of adolescence is pretty subjective, and it varies from culture to culture. Like in America, 13-year-olds used to be working in factories in the Industrial Revolution, and they were kind of treated as many adults, but now 13-year-olds are treated as being mentally less mature than those out of adolescence, which is, I mean, it's true. So the concept of adolescence isn't really there for some Eastern countries where kids go straight from being a kid to working. So when you define adolescence scientifically, though, it's when you start sexual maturity and ends when you become independent. So the signs of puberty are something you've probably reviewed a ton, but for guys, it's the development of testes a growth spurt, deepening of the voice, and growth of hair all over the body. For women, it's an ovary development, growth spurt, development of breasts and hips, and growth of armpit and pubic hair. So timing varies from person to person, and in anything we study regarding development, it's just a given that everybody's different, so the ages aren't really set in stone. They're kind of just ranges. So like I mentioned, the cultural definition of adolescence varies, but scientifically, 
it's noticeable that adolescence is a stage of maturity. So you got to know three things that specifically change to make you more mature. And these are like mental things. So we go back to the brain for this one. The three aspects that change are your prefrontal cortex, your limbic system, and lastly, the corpus callosum. So the prefrontal cortex, it's all about higher order cognition and preparation. So remember in the previous episode, we talked about the prefrontal cortex. We said the prefrontal cortex is for preparing. So teenagers, you know, their dumb decisions can kind of be blamed on their newfound freedom paired with their prefrontal cortex not being completely developed as an adult. So the prefrontal cortex grows, but I also mentioned the limbic system and the corpus callosum. So the limbic system, it includes a ton of things, but I'm only going to focus on the amygdala and the hypothalamus for right now. So I mentioned both of these before, but no worries, we'll go over it once more. The amygdala, it's responsible for emotions, most noticeably the animalistic emotions like fear or anger. And the hypothalamus, it's the bridge between the nervous system and the endocrine system. It's used for regulating hormones. So after hearing these definitions, it kind of makes sense that they're both being developed in adolescence. So your emotions, you know, they're all out of whack when you're a teenager. And hormonally, there's a ton of things going on. So adolescence, it's sexual maturity, but it's also mental maturity. And the years are really formative. So whatever path you decide to go down in these years, it really shapes your perspective on life. So on a similar note, your life is really altered by your environment as well. The concept of nature versus nurture is a tentpole topic on the MCAT, and it rears its head once again here. But the concept of an environmental trigger is fascinating, in my opinion. For example, let's say there's two babies, one's hideous and one's attractive. So the attractive one, it just inherently gets more attention. And because of that, it's way more social. It adjusts really well to society. But the hideous one might get little to no social interaction and be isolated. Well, let's say both babies had a gene that made them prone to depression. Who do you think would suffer from it? The one that's often isolated or the one that's super well adjusted to society? The attractive person might be prone to depression, but they were never in situations that led to depression in this scenario. So the gene was never activated. But the isolated one, they might have had the gene activated because they're more isolated. So this is just an example of nature playing a part, but nurture also playing a part in personality. So clearly behavior is in a sense a response to the environment. You know, we adapt and respond and that lends to our behavior. But there's innate behaviors too. So innate behaviors, they involve stuff like consummate behavior. That is basically when you get something once and you fully develop it right then and there without experiencing it. So that's like when a pregnant woman feels nauseous looking at sushi because of that innate behavior of knowing that it might be a risk to the baby. That's consummate behavior. That's an innate behavior. Another example of innate behavior is intrinsic behavior. That's stuff you do even if you're raised or completely isolated, like, you know, peeing or pooing, stuff like that. Lastly, reflexes are also innate behaviors. Basically, innate behaviors are just behaviors that are genetically programmed. So with the concept of behavior comes the thought of why we do certain things. So why do we want a family? You know, why do we want to do good in school? Stuff like that. Motivation is weird because often we're always pushing towards a certain goal. And there's five perspectives for motivation. You know, why are we motivated? First is the evolutionary theory. That just says you're motivated by basic human needs. Pretty basic, right? Pretty simple. Then there's the drive reduction theory. Basically, you have needs and you have drives and you maintain a homeostasis between them. So you need water, therefore you're driven by thirst, and then you undergo drive-reducing behavior, which is drinking water. So drive reduction theory involves a need, a drive, and then reducing the drive. That's a theory of motivation. 
The third one is the optimum arousal theory. So the optimum arousal theory says that we always want to reach the peak arousal or alertness. Then there's the cognitive theory of motivation. That says our thought processes drive our behavior, but you know, that's incredibly broad, right? So the real motivational theory you got to focus on is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's like a pillar of psychology. You'll see it all the time. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a pyramid of needs that must be filled from the bottom to the top. So the bottom is the most basic stuff. We call that the physiological stuff. That's just stuff you need to survive. So stuff like water, food, breathing, sleep, etc. Once you get that down, you go on thinking about your safety. So that means your overall health, your resources. In our current day, that means like how safe your job is, stuff like that. So once you get those basic down, you can start thinking about another thing. And that is love. So all types of love, you know, familial love, social love, romantic love, whatever. So at this point, we got the sleeping, the food, the water, all that stuff down. Those are the physiological stuff. Then we have our job set. We got a place to stay and all that. That's safety. And then let's say at this point, we got a caring family, you know, maybe a girlfriend, boyfriend. So love is checked off as well. At this point, we really feel a sense of achievement, you know, respect for ourselves and recognition that we're really taking steps towards success. That fourth step, recognizing yourself and respecting yourself, that's self-esteem. So you might think like that's the peak, right? Great family, everything's taken care of from the basic necessities to your own self-love. But there is a tip of Maslow's pyramid and that's self-actualization. So self-actualization is when you reach your personalized definition of maximum potential. It's a peak of your life where you're truly content. That's, you know, person to person, it really depends. So I know there's lots of different things to remember with Maslow's hierarchy, A great mnemonic is, quote unquote, please stop liking stupid stuff. So pretty memorable. Please stop liking stupid stuff. It's for physiological needs, you know, please. And safety, which is stop. Love, which is liking. Self-esteem, which is the stupid part. And then finally, self-actualization, which is the stuff part. So P-S-L-S-S. So one more time for Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Please stop liking stupid stuff correlates with physiological safety, love, self-esteem, and self-actualization. So similar to other theories, I'm going to throw a little bonus one in here. That's the incentive theory. It's kind of similar to the drive reduction theory. The incentive theory says that rewards are provided after actions and they're not always tangible rewards. So if you do well at work, you can get a tangible job promotion or you can get something intangible like job satisfaction, right? So this theory was really publicized by Skinner. And if you remember Skinner, he was the guy who had that theory on learning that had to do with rewards too. So he thought you learn through positive and negative reactions. So if your mom gets excited when you say the word mama when you're a baby, you keep saying it. So he carried that theory of rewards with the incentive theory. So he thought any behavior that's rewarded is done more and those that are not rewarded are done less. You know, positive and negative reinforcement basically. All right, so we talked about motivation, we talked about behavior, but behavior that is consistent when you're interacting with a certain object all the time is attitude. And there's three components of attitude. Those are affective, behavioral, and cognitive. So affective, behavioral, and cognitive. Affective is like your emotions. Behavioral is like how you behave, and cognitive is like how you think. So attitude is separated into three components, how you feel, how you behave, and how you think. And that's often called the ABC model of attitude because, you know, effective A, behavioral B, cognitive C. All right. So let's take an example. You know, Billy Bob Joe says, I love running because I get to focus on myself and it helps me stay fit. So, you know what? I'm going to run every single day. Well, that I love running is emotional. 
so I believe it helps me stay fit is cognitive and the I will run every day is behavioral. You know, you're planning your behavior. So that's just an example of how you have an attitude towards something. There's three facets. All right, so attitude involves thinking, behaving, and emotionally responding to something. And there's a few theories that correspond with attitude. All right, so we ran into five schools of thought of behavior, which was evolutionary, drive reduction, optimum arousal, cognitive, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Plus, we threw that bonus of incentive theory at the tail end. Then we moved on to attitudes. Well, attitudes themselves, they also have some schools of thoughts. And I guess a better way of saying it are theories of attitudes on how attitudes influence behavior. Anyways, those are the theory of planned behavior, the attitude to behavior process model, the prototype willingness model, and the elaboration likelihood model. And just like with behavior, the really important one was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This one, the really important one is the last one as well. It's elaboration likelihood model. So just, you know, focus on that one when it rolls around. I'll go from first one to last one. So the theory of planned behavior, it just says that we think about what our intentions will cause before we behave. So our attitudes about something is planned before we behave. Pretty basic, right? The next one is the attitude to behavior process model. It says an event triggers attitude. And that basically attitude and knowledge outside of the situation shapes your behavior. Uh, the third theory on how attitude influences behavior is the prototype willingness model that basically says behavior, it's a function of six things, all right? Behavior is a function of past behavior, your attitude, subjective norms, intentions, willingness to engage in that type of behavior, and then also models of what behavior should be. So you think about what behavior should be. But as you can see clearly, there's six things. The prototype willingness model just says attitude is a part of what influences behavior, but there's a ton of other things. You know, there's models of what behavior should be, there's intentions, there's past behaviors, etc. So it's just a piece of the puzzle. All right, so the big one is the elaboration likelihood model. So you know how we mentioned that the attitude has the ABC thing, affective, behavioral, cognitive? Well, the elaboration likelihood model is heavily cognitive and it focuses actually on persuasion. So the elaboration likelihood model thinks that there's two ways to process info. The central method, which depends on the quality of the argument by the person trying to persuade you. And then there's the peripheral, which is the superficial stuff that isn't exactly the point at hand. Like, you know, how attractive the persuader is or how cool they are, stuff like that. So elaboration likelihood model says that central info is what the point is. And peripheral info is like all the extra fluff, like beauty and status and all that jazz. So both are able to persuade us, though. And that basically says our attitude about something really affects our ability to be persuaded. Now, we talked about behavior. We talked about how attitude influences behavior. But does behavior influence attitude? If you think about it, that should be kind of a basic, obvious yes. How people behave shapes what you think of them, right? So some examples of behavior influencing attitude is the foot in the door phenomenon. That is basically when we agree to a small action first and then over time start agreeing to bigger stuff. So our behavior of getting our foot in the door at first is what allows us to change our attitudes. We start being prone to doing more, bigger, influential things. So our behavior changed our attitude. Another behavior shaping attitude thing is role playing. So let's say you're at a new job, right? You have to be super professional, all that stuff. You fake it for a bit, but then after a few weeks, you know, after a few months down the line, 
that professional feeling you have, it kind of becomes your job self. So it kind of becomes you in a way. That's a good example because you behaved in a certain way and then your attitude shifted because of that behavior. So behavior shifts attitude. Attitude also alters behavior. All right, so we'll end this episode with a really popular theory in cognition in attitude and behavior. That's the cognitive dissonance theory. Basically, it says if you have two conflicting trains of thoughts, you shape one or both of them so that they can both live in harmony. So you can shape your thoughts by either modifying an existing thought, trivializing it, saying it's not that big of a deal, adding more information so the trains of thoughts work together, or lastly, denying it completely. So let's just bring up an example. Let's say you think thieves are bad, but you stole something. So you have two different conflicting trains of thoughts here. Your thoughts led to an action of stealing something, but you also had the thought that thieves are bad. So you might just trivialize it, say, oh, I didn't really steal anything too expensive. I'm not really a thief. Or you might add information like, oh, I actually deserved what I stole, you know, so on and so forth. So cognitive dissonance, it's pretty simple. Just know how we reduce the dissonance, which is modifying cognition, trivializing, adding information or denying information. All right, just like that, we're done. Um, just a real quick thing. If you're listening on the podcast app on an Apple device, if you could throw a rating or review, that would be great. I really try my hardest to get all this content, you know, write my notes down, make it easy to understand, throw some mnemonics in there too. So a good rating would mean a lot. Just like that, thank you so much for listening to episode four of Grow Series and MCAT Content Review Podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email me at growseriesmcat at gmail.com. That's G-R-O series MCAT at gmail.com. And have a good one. See you guys on the next episode.